on the inside of the bulletin. This is Luke 19, 11 through 27. The parable of the ten minas. Hear the word of the Lord. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The word of the Lord. Well, I want to ask the question, who is the greatest? You remember, of course, the great Muhammad Ali, who said that he was the greatest. He was speaking, of course, after he had vanquished all challengers. Based on the fact of his record, he was communicating, there's none who can beat me. I am the greatest of all boxers. We often equate the greatest with he or she who has accomplished the most. If you've been watching the presidential debates, that's been a big point of contention. These are the qualifications I have, but, but more than that, this is what I've done. In fact, that was Donald's, uh, you know, barb against uh, Hillary Clinton. You've been in office for 30 years and what have you done? In other words, you haven't accomplished anything. We measure the success of people by that which they have accomplished. I think we can also tend to do that in Christianity. We ask the question, who is the greatest? And we naturally answer, well, it's he or she who has accomplished the most. And this story seems to indicate as such for the person uh, who got the 10 minas, who created the 10 minas, gets 10 cities. But I want to suggest that if we think that greatness in the kingdom of God is based on accomplishments, we have missed the point. We are reading this story wrong. And we often evaluate ourselves in our Christian walk on the wrong principles. In other words, there's sort of a two-tier society in Christianity. There's the professional people, those who have 
gone overseas or gone into the ministry or the big ministry greats who have the radio show or the doctor, or, or, excuse me, or the, uh, the, the program or whatever and then there's just little old me. And we base ourselves by what sort of impact that we've had. I want to suggest to you that the message of this passage is that the true test of, gratefulness, of greatness is not production but rather faithfulness. Not production to the cause, but rather faithfulness to the king. That we are reading this passage through our western eyes. And if we read it the wrong way, we will make the mistake of thinking that. Because Jesus shows us by being faithful to us to the point of death. That the goal of life is to be faithful to him. We're going to look at three particular uh, uh, topics or sections. Number one, we have to understand how Jesus, how this person evaluates his servants. What is the criteria and standard he uses? Number two, we have to take a look and figure out why he chooses to evaluate his servants. What are the standards he uses? Why does he use those standards? And finally, we need to examine our life and to ask the question, what are the standards we are using to evaluate whether we are being productive in the kingdom of God. Well, let's look at number one, how he evaluates his servants. We see in verse 11, it says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And they supposed the kingdom of God was going to come immediately. These things refer to Jesus has gone to be uh, the guest of Zacchaeus, the despised tax collector for the Romans. Zacchaeus has had a change of heart. They were despising Zacchaeus and grumbling against Jesus. Yet Jesus' very presence in Zacchaeus' home has caused him to repent of his sin. And surely there is not a, uh, someone in the room that is not moved by seeing the kingdom of God move in Zacchaeus' life. And now Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And the natural understanding is that Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom of God, which means to overturn the Roman Empire, to grant it back to Israel. Passover, which is the time of, that they're in right now, commemorates the political freedom of Israel from Egypt. And so we understand why the people are shouting Hosanna to the son of David when Jesus walks into Jerusalem. And we also understand why they shout crucify him at the end of the week. Because he has not fulfilled their political expectations. Jesus knows that all of this is about to happen. And so he tells this parable because he wants these people to understand really what is about to happen. So he says in this parable that a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now everyone would understand this concept because it's Rome that controlled everything. So it all, the seat of all power is Rome and it's Rome that bestows kingdoms and takes them away. And they would understand this because their recent history teaches them that this is the th way things work. Herod the Great in 40 BC had to go to Rome to be appointed the king and then to come back. And indeed Archelaus who was the last king before they started uh, appointing governors 
Pilate was the current governor, had to do the same thing in 6 BC to leave Jerusalem, to go to Rome, to receive the appointment, and to come back. And so this nobleman goes away into a far country to receive a kingdom. Now when the nobleman goes, there's a vacuum of power. See, we're used to the process of democratic elections and how uh, we have a very uh, seamless process of transition of power. In fact, that was what caused a little bit of unrest in this past uh, political uh, d uh, debate when they asked, will you accept uh, you know, the, the results? And Trump said no. I think what Trump was communicated and clarified was if they're, if they're full and free and fair, then yes. I'm not sure I can get into Trump's head every time, so I'm not sure. But it caused no uh, small amount of consternation because we all know that problems occur when there is a vacuum of power. The region of the Middle East still to this day is politically unstable. And back then, it would be a very unstable time because someone would go away, but there would be other competing people for the crown. What was to happen in the interim? And so, before this man goes away, this nobleman, he calls ten of his servants. And he gives them ten minas. He says, engage in business until I come. A mina was about a hundred days wages. So he gives ten of his servants a hundred days wages and says, go, engage in business until I come back. Now that is the question, of course. When is he going to come back? Is he going to come back? Perhaps some of them are thinking. And sure enough, as he goes off to ask to be made king, verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Notice it says, his citizens, meaning he is a nobleman, he would appear by lineage to be the rightful ruler, but his citizens, sounds like the majority of his citizens, did not want him to be a ruler. In fact, it says they hated him. Hate is a four-letter word, so it appears there's a strong antagonism against this man. Okay, it was not too long ago, actually, that this very thing happened. When Archelaus was going to Rome to be appointed, to request to be appointed king, he was a violent man, and so a delegation of 50 uh, Jews was sent from Jerusalem, supported by 8,000 people that went before Caesar and said, we do not want this man to be king. He's violent, he's not good, etc., etc. We don't want him. And so they would be thinking in these terms. That's exactly what's happening here. Now we have to scratch our head and ask the question, why does he delegate the money? Why is he doing this with these servants? Is it simply for profitability? I don't think so. If he's king, profitability is not going to be an issue, is it? No, rather, he knows that opposition exists. And so when he tells them to engage in business, what he's really doing is he's testing his servants. See, it's going to be an unstable political climate where people's positions are going to be measured. Which side are you on, so to speak? The side of the citizens or the side of the noblemen? They're all slaves. They will be known as not having money of their own, so 
When he's saying to engage in business, what he's saying is engage in business in my name. In order to engage in business, they're going to have to identify themselves with the nobleman. They're going to have to be publicly communicating that they are looking out for his interests. The servants are going to have to make a decision when the nobleman is gone. The way I see it, there's really two options. Number one, to go out there to vigorously promote their affiliation with the master. To seek to further his interests, to make a profit for him. And the other is to keep your head down. Bury the money, so to speak. See how everything shakes out. Play it safe. And then make your decision. And then, of course, there's somewhere in the spectrum between those two. Well, the people go, but at the end of the day, he is appointed king, much like Archelaus was. Guess what Archelaus did when he came back, by the way. Verse 15, when he returned, this nobleman, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to them, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now this is very interesting here, and this is the kicker, so to speak. The translation of this word, gain by doing business, by the way, which is one word. It's uh, one word. It's only used once in the New Testament. Has two meanings. And the secondary meaning is the one that's actually used, gain by doing business. But the primary meaning, the one that's used in, to this day in the Arabic and the Syriac and the Egyptian texts, from the second century on is not how much was gained from doing business but rather how much business was done. How much business was transacted. Okay, why does that make a difference? Gain by doing business and how much business was transacted. See, gain by doing business, ultimately, the question is simply this, how much did you make? But how much business transacted means how often did you get out there and try to make a profit? In other words, the nobleman, by saying how much business was transacted, is saying, let me see the ledger books. I don't just want to see the bottom line. In fact, I don't want to see the bottom line at all. I want to see how many transactions you had. How often that you were in the marketplace hustling to make money for me. See, we look at this passage through the lens of Western capitalism, which is all about profitability, right? It's all about the bottom line. The king doesn't care about the bottom line. What the king cares about is loyalty. See, how do I know that this is the correct translation? Simply this. Why were they rewarded? Did the king say, well done, good and profitable servant... In other words, you did very well with the money. Or well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with what I told you to do. Did he reward them by giving them a share of the profits? Or did he reward them by giving them more responsibility? See, he is the king. And his number one need when he comes back is loyal subjects. People that he knows that he can trust. Now why is Jesus telling this parable? 
He's telling this parable because everybody's with him now, right? He's here and he's triumphantly going in and all of the disciples are with him. But Jesus knows that he must go to be appointed. He must go to the cross. He must die on that cross. He must go to heaven. And he must sit at the right hand of the Father and be appointed king and he must send the Holy Spirit. And when he goes to that cross, things are going to get unpopular. A time is coming, Jesus even says, when people, when they, people kill you, they think they'll doing, be doing a service to God. And so what he's really communicating is, he who really loves me is the one who's willing to stand with me. Not when things are easy, but when things are hard. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 10, 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, also will I deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus knows that these are the people that are going to carry on his business, his disciples and his followers. He's given them a task, hasn't he? to go in my name and proclaim the gospel, transact business in my name. He needs to know that they're going to do it when he is gone, when things get hard and unpopular. Thank goodness that they did. We're here today because of them. And so I get to us today in the United States of America where it's still relatively easy to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. But the times they are a-changing, aren't they? Polls are telling us, even more so, to even talk about Jesus Christ can be deemed as offensive. Jesus is being banned from the public square. It's a private religious thing, but don't bring him into discussions of policy or politics or in the academic circles. Morality, it's being communicated. Yes, it's fine being a Christian as long as it's, you're a casual Christian. As long as it doesn't impinge upon my sexuality, upon my morality, upon my principles. Perhaps you have already begun to experience more and more the persecution that comes from being called a follower of Jesus Christ. It's always easy to be a follower of Christ when everybody's a follower of Christ. But perhaps you, like me, are experiencing the temptation more and more to conform to the patterns of this world, to not go in His name, to not rock the boat, perhaps to hide our affiliation and wait until things settle down a bit. Remember hearing a story from a seminary professor he used to go over to Latvia, which is one of the republics, the former uh, states of the Soviet Union, and is an independent state since 91. And he would teach short courses in Latvia, and he asked the professors what sort of questions they would ask the, the students who were uh, uh, interested in becoming pastors. They said to him, the most important question we ask them is, when were you baptized? And I asked, why is the date of baptism such an important question? 
He said if they were baptized during the period of Soviet rule, they risked their lives and compromised their future by being baptized. But if they were baptized after liberation from the Soviets, we have many further questions to ask them about why they want to become pastors. It's not necessarily bad questions. But you see, they had proven themselves if they had been baptized before in a time of antagonism, in a time of unrest. See, what I'm trying to communicate to us is that we need to change our focus from production to loyalty and faithfulness. How do you evaluate your life? Well, I'm a good speaker. I can communicate the gospel. Or I've led people to Jesus before. Or I know the scriptures. Or maybe you're saying, I haven't done any of those things. And as I look at the problems in my life, the challenges and temptations I face, I feel like I'm falling behind in the Christian race. Perhaps if I was pressed to the wall, I would have to asking us the question through this parable, do you worship me? Are you proud to be associated with me? Are you about my business and my interests? Or are you hiding the fact that you love me and that you follow me and that you're about me? Are you willing to step out and say, yes, I too am a follower of Jesus Christ? No matter what the climate, no matter if anybody joins in, no matter what my life looks like, if a court case, a court was convened and you were put on trial and evidence was put together to communicate whether you were a Christian or not, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You see, we have to change our focus from output to loyalty. I can't control the results of my life, but I can control what I do and how I live it. I can be faithful to Him in proclaiming Him in how I choose to live, in the way I conduct my friendships with people, in the way I parent my children, in the way I do my job. I can say that the goal in my life is that I want to be known as a follower of Jesus. And irregardless of the consequences and the results, that people ultimately can know and would say, yes, this person is a follower of Christ. And that I honor him and am faithful to him. How much business have you transacted? How faithful have you been to me? That is the question. Now we have to ask the question, why does he evaluate this way? Seems to be a lot easier to evaluate based on the results, right? You can tabulate up that, while this is much more an issue of the heart. Why does the nobleman evaluate this way and why does Jesus do that? Notice when the nobleman returns, everything is different, right? He's the king. All the power of the army and the magistracy and the title are his. And so, the first comes before him. How much business have you transacted? He shows him the ledger. Ultimately, Lord, your mina has earned ten more. I love how he says, by the way, it's your mina. He never forgot what he was about. 
And the nobleman says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. That's quite a turnaround, isn't it? A hundred days wages to ten cities. Isn't that a bit extreme? Notice, more responsibility. Not a share of the profits. Why does he go from ten minas to ten cities? The reason is that he has the confidence of the king. See, the king no longer has to worry about those cities. Because here is a man in the space of uncertainty who showed himself faithful to me. If he'll be faithful to me, in the midst of that, he certainly will be faithful to me in the midst of now. I can have confidence in him. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five more. And you will be over five cities. By the way, other passages, there are two other simultaneous parables in uh, the other Gospels that talk about this. He has also said the same thing, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. But the difference is not profit, it's proactivity. This man has gone out. He's put his name on the line. He's transacted business. It's ultimately created profit. See, somehow the nobleman knew that if you go out on my behalf, there will be results. Faithfulness will always produce fruitfulness. But that fruitfulness comes not from us, but rather from the king. What we are tested on is our faithfulness. See, there's a spiritual truth that he or she who is trusted with little can be trusted with much. And the Lord says, I'm in charge of the productivity. Did he not say, I, you did not choose me, but I appointed you to go and bear fruit. I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Where does that come from, the branch or the vine? Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus holds himself responsible for productivity and he calls us to faithfulness. Both these men were faithful, honored and trusted, and so he put them in positions of power. But what about the last? Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Why did he hide it? It wasn't because of this. Who's caring for this slave? Where is he getting food to eat? Where's the house he's staying in? He's given this man authority and responsibility and autonomy. And so he exposes his hypocrisy. I'll judge you by your words. You could have at least put the money in the bank. Back then it was very hard to get capital. And so the bankers would loan it at exorbitant interest. The money changers, even in the temple, there are always ways to do things right. He could have made money. Why does this man see the master this way? He sees it this, him this way because of this. Because unfaithfulness always will produce a twisted vision of God. See, he wanted to justify himself, right? Right? 
He made a decision. I'm going to do it my way. So of all the people he's lying to, the first person he's lying to is himself. How we choose to live will influence how we see God. Either as a tyrant or as a good master and Lord. Why does God care so much about faithfulness? Jesus is telling a parable, a spiritual picture of a reality, a heavenly reality. It's because the very character of God is faithfulness, isn't it? Remember Moses saying to God, I want to see your face. And God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and puts his hand over him as he passes by. And it says, as the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's part of his nature to be faithful. God took the Israelites and by his own name swore that you will be my people and I will be your God. I will watch over you and protect you. By my very name, I will be faithful to you. Jesus, right now, is about to undergo his own trial. He's been sent by the Father. And by the end of this horrible saga, all will abandon him. None will be faithful. And what is Jesus' purpose? To stand for mankind. Because mankind is lost. And there's none to stand for him. Jesus, the Son of Man, became flesh, stood in the place of man to stand for man when no one would. And he died to redeem them. Through his suffering on the cross, he traded his life for ours. He experienced the same temptations that we all did. Did he not in the garden say, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. See, Jesus' very walk, the thing he's about to do, shows his faithfulness to us. His faithfulness to the very end. And because Jesus has been faithful to us to the point of death, let us live faithfully to him as the point of our life. You may not know what you're living for. You may. But I have to ask the question, what are you dying for? What's worth dying for in your life? You see, the strength to be loyal and faithful to Jesus lies in the fact that he was first faithful and loyal to me. He stood in my place. And so what is our motivation for this life? Is our Christianity a have to? Or is our Christianity a get to? Is this all about a reward at the end? Or is it all about the goodness of my master? For the one with the ten minus and the five minus, it was because he was good. He's proven. I'll do this for him, irregardless of the climate. I know who I am and I know who he is. And if he died for me and you, we can live for him. And so your motivation to live for him 
is his faithfulness to you. High schoolers, as you're going about your life, as you're living, as you're dating, as you're spending more and more time away from your parents, more and more making your own decisions, what will be my motivation? The world and who they say is popular? Fear or faithfulness and loyalty to the one who gave all for me? Adults, when we're tempted to cave in, to be like everyone else in the office, to cut that corner, to say that statement, to choose that path, when no one's looking, will we choose to live loyally? It's the motivation of the love of Christ. We have a reason to live. We have someone worth dying for. And so let us proclaim him with our actions and with our words. Let us not be ashamed to speak his name because of what he did for us. Let us be counted as men and women who love Jesus Christ. I really don't care in the end what they say about Redeemer Presbyterian Church as long as they say this. Man, they love Jesus. And they're faithful to him. I hate this and this and this and what they, but you know what? They're the real deal. Gets to the final point, doesn't it? How are we to live? I love how Jesus finishes. Takes the minor from the one guy and gives it to the one who has ten. But sir, he already has ten. Jesus says, whoever has will be given more. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. As these people were given greater responsibility when the king comes back. The king is going to come back, by the way. We've already received notice that he is the one in charge, right? Did he not visit back and say, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples. And I will come back. Men of Israel, the angel said, why do you look up in the sky? Did not the same Jesus who went up that way return, will return to you also? And no one knows the time. Every moment counts because I'm accountable for every moment. It makes a difference how I live in this life for the responsibilities that I will have in the next. Doesn't matter in the end, I believe, what my docket will say in terms of accomplishments. Man, wouldn't it be neat if I was a mega church pastor, right? Could dance around and be on TV and have 6,000 people show up for my passage. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But if that's your goal, that's an idol. And there will be no reward. I think we're going to be very surprised at the end of the day in heaven who is considered the greatest. I think it's that little old woman, right? Sort of washing the floors who no one paid any attention to. Maybe she's the one who's going to be ruling Saturn. I don't know. Because Jesus has been faithful to us to the point of death when none would stand for us. Let us live faithfully to him as the point of our life. 
Leave the fruit to Him. Give your heart and your faithfulness in all that you do. Proclaim with your life and your mouth, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And let the chips fall where they may. That's a life worth living. It's a death worth dying. Let's pray. Father, I so thank you that at the end of the day, what you want is our heart. And our heart is demonstrated in our loyalty and our faithfulness. God, help us not to focus so much on the profitability and the product, but on being faithful to you in the little things and the big things. Lord, help us to be sold out for you. Let the motivation of your cross and your love and your grace be all that we need to walk in your ways. Lord, let it make a difference, not for us, but rather that your name might be made famous. We pray all of this in Christ's name.